Welcome to Calling All Stations with me, Christian Walmart. It's the podcast where we examine all aspects of transport and keep you up to date with the issues. With me is Mark Walker, Chief Executive of Cogitamas. And we have quite a lot of, on our plate today, don't we, Mark? Yes, indeed, Christian. We're going to cover a wide range of subjects in this episode. First of all, we're going to look at how transport, and in particular public transport, is organised differently in Northern Ireland from how it operates in Great Britain. Then we're going to look at a recent report on reducing emissions from aviation, in particular from aviation fuel. We're also going to examine some recent and very serious and tragic uh, rail accidents that have occurred in Greece and the United States and what they might tell us about rail safety here in the UK. And then finally, you're going to have a parting thought around a new initiative on driverless vehicles. Christian, Northern Ireland has been very prominent in the news in the last week or so following the Windsor Agreement between the UK government and the European Union on modifications to the protocol. But we thought it might be worth having a look with Northern Ireland being so uh, much in the forefront of people's thinking at how the organisation of transport and in particular public transport is different in Northern Ireland from Great Britain. And you've been looking into this. Um, yes, well, I've always uh, had a, a little eye on uh, Northern Ireland, been over there uh, a few times because there is something rather funny about it. You know, we were told uh, at the time of uh, rail privatisation that we had to uh, separate out the infrastructure from the operations. Uh, effectively, we were almost told that it had to be privatised. And similarly, uh, in the mid-1980s, we had bus deregulation, um, and that was also supposed to bring about a great public, a private sector kind of innovation into the bus world and lead to, you know, all sorts of new bus services and whatever. And Northern Ireland has avoided all this. So the 1985 uh, uh, Buses Act, which uh, both broke up the National Bus Corporation in the UK and uh, led to uh, the arrival of all these names that we are now familiar, like uh, Arriva and Stagecoach and, and Go Ahead, who basically over the space of just a few years, and this was the subject of my first book actually, which was on Stagecoach, over the space of a few years, they uh, created uh, private monopolies in their areas rather than the public monopolies they had been. Well, uh, Northern Ireland, that just doesn't happen. They have one organisation which uh, runs both uh, the railways and uh, the bus services called Translink. Um, and uh, it's uh, publicly owned. Uh, there's never been a question of uh, separating out the infrastructure. So it invests in, in infrastructure. It, it has invested in quite a lot of uh, new trains uh, recently. Uh, the line through from uh, Belfast to, to uh, Derry uh, has been uh, revamped. 
it also runs uh, partly in conjunction with uh, Irish Railways, uh, the service between uh, Belfast and, and Dublin. Um, and it all seems to work pretty effectively. I was uh, in Northern Ireland uh, a few months ago. Um, and one of the things that really uh, struck me was that uh, the main station, which was called Belfast Central, but is apparently going to be renamed as Lanyon Place. I'm not quite sure why. But uh, the, the uh, station there where there was a lot of work taking place, um, you know, it was being uh, revamped, but it's right in the heart of, of Belfast. Um, and that was uh, linked directly uh, behind it to the bus station. Um, and you, you know, you could hop on the buses uh, directly. The, the, the airport bus runs out of the back there. There's buses to lots of places, both uh, in Northern Ireland and south of the border. And, you know, Mark, that's old fashioned uh, integrated transport, isn't it? It all sounds uh, very nice, Christian, but does it actually work? And is it delivering for passengers, for the environment and the economy, in your judgment? Well, I, I think it does. I mean, I, uh, you know, it, it, I think it it does precisely what, in fact, many uh, transport planners would like for uh, the rest of uh, the, the UK. You know, it gives them the ability to, for example, uh, run uh, bus services where they're the best thing or run rail services where they're the best thing, rather than having to create some sort of a fake competition between them. It's enabled them to uh, invest quite uh, reasonably in uh, the, the rail service, the bus service out to the airport, I, as far as I found was absolutely excellent. And of course, they have a, a strategy for the future and uh, they, they've got a, a strategy they call, you know, for 2030 called Better Connected, um, which, as they say, sets out a vision to make Translink your first choice for travel today for tomorrow. And I mean, you know, I, I'm slightly sceptical about those sort of mission statements, but it does allow them to have, you know, all their eggs in one basket and, and therefore, you know, kind of to choose what eggs they're going to use today. And it's, you know, it's the way that effectively transport should be run. And in many places on the continent uh, is still run with many, many towns and cities which have a unique kind of transport infrastructure that is run by the local council and it runs the trams and it runs the buses and controls the roads and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, that's pretty much uh, the case in, in Northern Ireland. Now, I suspect what happened, of course, is that uh, successive governments, uh, given the fragile state of uh, the, the public uh, uh, policy in uh, Northern Ireland, they did, the body politic, as it were, they did not want to tamper with that and risk uh, privatisation with, remember, all the chaos it caused in uh, uh, in England particularly, but also Scotland and Wales, when uh, the buses were privatised and there were kind of hundreds of old buses running on main streets in towns. And, uh, you know, they kept London out of it as well uh, for political reasons. And I think they kept Northern Ireland out of it for the same reason. So, uh, you know, the circle goes around. We're now getting sort of renationalization of buses in places like uh, Manchester, other other towns and cities want to do that. So the circles turn fully round and Northern Ireland's been uh, uh, the same all the way through. It's quite ironic, isn't it? I suppose the last time many people in uh, GB 
with an interest in transport gave attention to Northern Ireland was during the work of the Union Connectivity Review, when at one time it was being suggested that Northern Ireland might be linked to Scotland with a bridge or a tunnel. But that was all kind of missing the point, really, wasn't it? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, um, I always thought that was one of the more insane ideas. I mean, if you've ever uh, driven to uh, Stranra, as I have, uh, you find there's a kind of, you know, nearly 100 miles of road before you get to the motorway. The idea that you then kind of drive underneath the sea for some 30 miles with possibly a roundabout in the middle, they thought, that was always insane. And instead, actually, you know what they should do? They should look at uh, the transport in Northern Ireland. The Labour Party should do this. Look at it and uh, see that actually this kind of simple uh, integrated structure works uh, perfectly well. Uh, it doesn't cost vast amounts of money um, and you can direct investment to, to where you want it. So, uh, you know, this is an example where Northern Ireland is ahead of us, as it is um, because it's part of the single market and part of the uh, uh, UK, as um, as our prime minister said the other day. But we won't go there. There's been a very interesting report in the last few days, Christian, about the objective, the laudable objective of trying to achieve greater sustainability in civil aviation, in particular by reducing emissions of carbon dioxide and other nasties from uh, the, the use of aviation, traditional aviation fuel and, and the replacement with innovative products. You've done a bit of a dive into that report, haven't you? Uh, yes, I mean, this didn't really get the uh, attention it uh, deserved because um, it essentially, without daring to say so, uh, pretty much put the lid on the idea. I mean, it's a report by uh, the Royal Society, uh, which, is, which is, is called uh, Net uh, Zero Aviation F Fuels, Resource Requirements and Environmental Impacts. Um, but below that rather dull name is uh, a, a, a pretty powerful report setting out, uh, examining really what the alternatives are. And um, they focused on uh, four uh, different potential fuels, right? And so it all sounds quite promising uh, uh, initially, um, but they have to be... Um, the requirements are quite high you know they have to have a high enough uh energy density you know so you, you obviously can't kind of take a a load of old wood kind of to fuel your airplane it ain't going to work is it? it has to be so it has to be the energy has to be dense it has to be able to be produced uh in vast quantities we use a lot of this uh fuel um it has to be able to be implemented quickly you know they 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 this is supposed to be done by by uh, 2050 um so they looked at uh, essentially uh, uh four options which is uh biofuels uh which uh can uh be either uh, generated uh, uh, um, sustainably, they one the hopes, or uh, um, so essentially yeah. that's crops, isn't it? That's yes, that's, that's crops essentially that's fuel. essentially uh, uh, things that are are grown. I mean, 
you could also think of and and they look at this but are not in any serious way you know waste cooking oil and stuff um but you know they 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 quickly uh, uh pretty much reject that. that's used in, uh, waste cooking oil is used in automotive isn't it as yes a, it as is used a bit i mean but, yeah. but the notion that you'd have sufficient quantities is um uh, uh, rather fanciful um and then there's there's hydrogen um, which, as you know, is, uh, you know, the railways are, are kind of looking at that and car manufacturers are, are considering. And I'll go into the, the kind of problems with, the, with each of these. Uh, then there's kind of a, a synthetic uh, e-fuels, which could be uh, essentially, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, making kind of uh, some sort of fuel with the use of um, possibly green hydrogen or uh, you know uh, sustainable means of 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 trans of uh of generating uh, electricity and uh finally ammonia uh which um for those of you who are chemists is uh, and i do remember this for is uh, nh3 so it's um nitrogen and hydrogen so it doesn't emit any uh, co2 when it uh, burns up now the problem is mark that um you know, none of these really pass the test. Um, uh, you know, uh, biofuels um, would need an awful lot of, of land. Um, and, and indeed, one of the suggestions in the report is that, you know, if you wanted to run it entirely on biofuels, you'd have need 50% of the land in the UK to, to, to be generated. This mainly, mainly kind of uh, rapeseed oil. Um, Hydrogen, and I think one could lump, lump in ammonia with this, is terribly problematic. I mean, hydrogen, because uh, it only uh, becomes liquid at minus 253 uh, degrees centigrade. That's minus 253. It's, it's seriously kind of, cold. It's seriously cold. It's only 20 away from absolute zero. Again, if the, the, the chemists and physicists amongst uh, our listeners may remember about absolute zero, that you can't get a temperature below that. Um, and so it's nearly there. Um, and it's also there's you can you can store it under very high pressure, kind of 60 or 70 or 80, I think, kind of times a normal pressure. And, and both of these are enormously problematic. And uh, effectively you've got a flying bomb you know that that uh, you know you can imagine that if there was an accident uh, that the, the explosion would be uh, absolutely enormous and also it's it's just uh, to keep things under that pressure requires a lot of equipment and so on so that's a problem uh, the, the the synthetic uh, e-fuels are just quite hard uh, to, to 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 make um, and uh, again, require a lot of energy in the production of them. So, you know, would you get to, to net zero? Um, and then uh, ammonia, um, which is also uh, very uh, not very safe, um, and dealing with ammonia would be a real problem. So, there's then several kind of sub issues from that. For example, you know, if you've got an airport uh, that, uh, you know, it needs fuel, diff these different types of fuel, because that'd be a transition phase, of course. Um, and uh, the airport workers would have to all be trained in making sure they put the right stuff in the right planes and uh, handling something like ammonia, which is really pretty toxic, uh, would be dangerous. Uh, so there'd be a whole lot of series of infrastructure uh, requirements at the airports. And also, of course, you need... <coughs> different sorts of planes to, to be able to uh, burn this, <coughs> excuse me, burn this sort of fuel. So 
Um, uh, I must say that uh, despite the fact that the scientists were, were desperately trying to uh, essentially say, no, no, this is, you know, this is, this is, this is a possibility. We might be able to, there's obstacles in it, but we might be able to, uh, uh, you know, do something. Um, you know, when you start looking at each of uh, each of these, you know, they even looked at sewage uh, for Christ's sake. You know, the, uh, um, and quite apart from all all these technical difficulties, there's also the cost. I mean, of course, uh, um, you know, uh, aviation fuel is relatively cheap compared to what it would cost. Uh, to make uh, some of these fuels. So you know how that aviation industry often kind of says, oh, well, we can, we're working towards uh, net zero. We're going to, uh, you know, be much more sustainable and all that. And this really uh, begs a lot of questions about how they could ever uh, develop uh, an alternative um, uh, to uh, conventional jet fuel. I mean, there are, you know, there, there has been a, a little planes that uh, have been that are now now electric. That, but you can't imagine a, a kind of Airbus three hundred and eighty kind of flying on electricity. So, can you see any way through this to manage to combine the goal of of net zero carbon with a continuing? global civil aviation industry which is so important to the 21st century economy well uh like a, a, a lot of these reports i mean effectively uh the the summary says well uh you know they, 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 these are uh, uh uh problematic you know aviation is a, is a big contributor to global warming we we recognize that um but uh it it basically concludes um, and I can read a little bit. It says, overall, the results of this analysis are uncertain and there is no clear or single net zero alternative to jet fuel. Um, and it adds, one of the problems encountered is that the parameters are difficult to measure and are interconnected, um, you know, which which means, you know, what, what, what are you trying to solve here and how do you manage to get a solution that is generally net zero? I mean, we already have that problem with electric cars, don't we? Uh, you know, yeah, they're net zero at the point of uh, use, but they're not necessarily uh, net zero at the point of production. So, uh, uh, actually, if I had to, if I, if I had to summarize this report and I was, uh, uh, you know, asked to give an honest answer, I'd say um, I, I don't think that the various problems I posed at the beginning about having a high enough energy content, about being cost competitive, about being produced at scale. I don't think that any of that is uh, going to make uh, a feasible alternative by 2050 or even if ever. You know, Christian, I think this is one of those issues that lends itself to a guest. If somebody would like to come onto the podcast who is close to this subject, regardless of their point of view, I think we'd be interested to hear from them. We'd absolutely love to hear from them. And uh, it's an issue that's not going to go away, but I suspect that uh, it, it's one of those areas where the, the, the science is going to struggle with coming up with a solution. There have been some shocking scenes both from the United States and from Greece of rail accidents in connection with freight movements. And those 
kind of are particularly shocking, I think, when you're used to the idea that rail is a very safe form of travel for people and for the, the conveyance of goods. How, how do you see this, Christian? Well, I've always uh, followed uh, rail accidents uh, uh, very closely. Uh, and I still have uh, in my head this image when I went to the uh, scene of the Labrook Grove crash in uh, 1999 when I was a reporter with the Independent. And there was this horrible sight, which you could see from the roof of the building I was on, of this part of a carriage overhanging uh, the, the uh, high-speed train, um, uh, kind of showing that, you know, there was a, a carriage of the Thames train that was completely, utterly destroyed, kind of hanging over the other train. And, and um, you know, as you know, 31 people died and uh, lots of people were seriously injured and it was uh, overall a horrific accident. And of course, the good news is uh, that by and large, um, rail safety, not just in the UK, but even across the world, uh, has improved immeasurably. I mean, even then, uh, in the late 90s, when, when I was a, a, a reporter on the uh, uh, Independent, that uh, it, was, it was really uh, quite common to have rail accidents somewhere in the world kind of most months, and most of those would be quite serious. India, in particular, was a place where there were lots of rail accidents, but, you know, Turkey... Egypt uh, and even in European countries, um, and you know I, I did a lot of reporting on them, and and that has reduced enormously. So that you know there are on most rail systems across the world very few accidents. I think of, think of all the subway systems there are now uh, in the world. You know two hundred and something cities with subway systems, and you know very very rare to to have uh, accidents on them, and they do get into the news. So uh, that's a, a big positive thing. And I'm going to come to a negative at the end of this. Uh, but looking at those two incidents is, is very interesting. I'll let, uh, just look at the American one first, which is oddly enough in a place called East Palestine. And this was um, about uh, nearly a month ago now, uh, where a, a, a train carrying all sorts of chemicals derailed right in the middle of this uh, uh, little town. And... Uh, Rather shockingly, um, it, 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 some of the, 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 the strategy of dealing with this by the freight company that owned the wagon was to, to burn off the stuff that had spilt. And nobody quite knows what, what kind of chemicals resulted from that. Um, basically, it has been you know, something of a mess. And, and uh, what's more, information has not been forthcoming. Nobody quite knows. Uh, you know what uh, the the uh, impact on the local area has been, um, and so on. And uh, you know, safety uh, on the railways in America is is generally quite tightly controlled, um, and indeed sometimes I think uh, excessively so when it comes to passenger trains, where we're given that forty thousand people are killed on the roads every year and uh, they really don't do much about that. But any time anybody, there's a rail accident involving passengers, they tighten up on things immediately and impose all sorts of regulations which are onus for the railways and actually push more people onto cars. That's a kind of different issue. But in this time, you know, there has been a lack of clarity about uh, precisely what, what get, get on. But fortunately, 
uh, nobody has been killed. This is certainly not the case uh, with the Greek rail accident, where uh, the toll is at least uh, 57 and quite possibly more, given that uh, there was a terrible fire in which uh, some people were completely incinerated and apparently went to 1200 degrees centigrade uh, when, when the full furnace uh, was burning. And uh, what is uh, uh, particularly uh, shocking about this is that it's really one of those old fashioned rail accidents that shouldn't happen anymore. A head on crash, two trains kind of heading uh, towards each other on the same tracks. And that's something that you know, tech signaling technology is now so much improved and, and the interlocking devices between the, the signaling um, and the tracks and the way the points so is uh, so uh, efficient and safety uh, proof these days that you know this is a, a rare a very rare type uh, of accent and there's some really fundamental questions I, I've been looking at the pictures of this quite a lot and you know, it, it does seem that both both trains were on the same, uh, the, the left-hand track looking northwards. Uh, there was electrification there, but I, I've not really been able to ascertain whether that was the locomotives on both were uh, electric. You know, why did was there this enormous fire if uh, it does seem that it might have been diesel that kind of uh, uh, caused that, unless it was some of the chemicals being carried and so on. So there's a lot of questions to ask. But you know what they've done, Mark, which is kind of classic in this sort of situation, which is they've blamed some local lowly uh, railway worker, and that's the the the, the, the station master, the station uh, below where this happened, apparently was responsible for shifting the the points and and made a mistake, um, and he's apparently uh, been arrested and, and getting the blame for this, but. You know that that is not the full story. I mean, there must be people higher up who've been responsible, quite possibly for cutbacks. That the Greek rail system has been hit badly by the cuts imposed on Greece, 2017 by by the EU as part of the financial bailout. Um, it's now oddly enough operated by the Italian state railways. It was privatized, but privatized in the same way that some of our railways have been privatized to uh, a state-owned company, the Ferrovia, Ferrovia Statale, you know, the Italian nationalized uh, rail system. Uh, and from reports that one sees, there has been underinvestment, uh, there's been cutbacks, uh, and one can imagine that you know, safety has been uh, put at risk by uh, those sort of uh, changes. And you know, the the idea that it goes down to some you know, hapless rail worker making a mistake, that should never be able to happen. There should always be uh, systems that you know, require more than one person to make one mistake to cause a disaster. Um, you know, there should be kind of backup systems and uh, uh, doubling of safety kind of requirements so that you know, one error does not lead to uh, this sort of uh, disaster. And you know, I hope that in the investigations that uh, follow, there there will be kind of uh, you know there, there'll be revelations about you know uh, exactly uh, the reasons for this. So recognizing it's very early days from that tragedy to to read across conclusions, which will inevitably um, require investigation, as you've said, is there anything 
any parallel that you think you can draw with the situation in Great Britain at the moment? Well, I tell you, I've had conversations with some senior rail people uh, recently, and um, some listeners might know that I, I've started writing about the nobody gives a damn railway, my rail column. Um, and, and that's a, a, attracted a lot of attention. In other words, what I'm saying is that, you know, because there's nobody in charge, because there's uh, cutbacks, because uh, there's industrial relations issues, um, because the structure is under debate and so on, um, that the day-to-day -day running of the system uh, has just deteriorated. And you personally, Mark, I know have had issues uh, uh, on the railway with your, your trips between Peterborough and London and, and elsewhere. Um, I've had uh, uh, similar issues on journeys uh, that, that I've made um, and you know countless numbers of my friends and contacts and, and people who email me have, have reported you know that there really is a feeling that you know nobody cares too much about uh, the way the railway is uh, operating. Nobody's um, you know, grabbing it by the scruff of the neck and trying to, to uh, sort things out. And one of the things that was told to me by somebody quite senior in the rail industry uh, says that, you know, he's very worried that this type of attitude is going to lead to a disaster. He said there's been a lot of near misses lately. And uh, there was one in particular uh, at uh, the beginning of uh, uh, earlier in February uh, at a place called Yarnton, uh, between uh, uh, on the on the Hereford line, essentially, where there's a, just a little a little bridge, uh, not really a tunnel, bridge, which uh, uh, some debris came off it, uh, went on the tracks. Fortunately, a, a train uh, kind of went over them, but didn't derail, uh, but then stopped, um, and uh, you know, obviously, uh, emergency procedures were instituted. But, uh, this person told me, it then took five hours for the uh, passengers to be evacuated because nobody was quite sure who was responsible for this and who could stop the trains from coming behind and uh, so on, which, you know, we've been running railways for nearly 200 years. You wouldn't have thought that these procedures are kind of set out. But because of the upheavals that uh, have happened in the industry and because of all the uncertainty, nobody quite knows what their uh, role is. Um, I think that there is a real risk that we might get some, some terrible uh, tragedy that arises from uh, this lack of people singing from the same hymn sheet. Let's hope not. And let's hope... Uh the extent of our problems on the railways are, in this country are limited to delays and inconvenience rather than things that threaten our lives and safety. On that score, uh, Christian, if I may, I'd just like to give a shout out to one brilliant railway person who did give a damn when I missed my connection at Leeds City uh, last week uh, when a train, a Transpennine train was uh, delayed and I watched my LNER train go out. And uh, Patrick on the platform at Leeds City was incredibly helpful in advising me of alternative arrangements and getting me home late, but not too late. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, when, when I talk about the nobody gives a damn railway, I know there's a lot of uh, ordinary uh, workers 
customer facing who do actually care about it. And I'm not criticizing them. What I'm criticizing is a sort of general malaise amongst certainly some managers and some uh, of the train operators who are no longer, of course, collecting uh, or keeping the fares and therefore have less incentive to bother to try to collect them. All that sort of thing uh, is at times coming from the top and indeed in some ways coming from the very top because of all the uncertainty. But no, there's lots of heroes out there like your friend Patrick, and I've come across quite a lot of them. Here's Christian's final thought from the departure lounge. Uh, well, Mark, I'm afraid it's driverless, and this time not cars, but actually buses, because yet again, there's another announcement about uh, a, a driverless bus system being created on some industrial estate uh, in Sunderland, and I think it's going to run people to uh, the uh, local university. And, and yet again, it's not really driverless. There'll be a, an operator on board. It's, it's very limited. It's going to run for a mile, a mile and a half. Um, and, you know, it's yet more kind of uh, uh, autonomous vehicle hype. And indeed, um, on uh, Wednesday uh, this week, I'm going to be giving uh, evidence to uh, a select committee, uh, the Transport Select Committee, uh, on uh, uh, driverless cars, which is one of my particular obsessions. So uh, people will be able to listen in and certainly we'll have an extract in our next podcast. So thank you for listening and uh, hope you enjoyed it. Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamus Limited production. If you've enjoyed our podcast, do follow us on whichever podcast platform you use and do please give us a five-star rating.